I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Well, we are one month and one week away from having Dr. Don K. Preston here to talk with us about the preterist point of view. There's a short email that I want to show you that we're sending out to the local churches, inviting the pastors specifically to attend as a means to challenge some of their thinking. Now, of course, we invite anyone who's interested in the subject uh, to tune in and also to come here in person. But I think it's important for the pastors of this state to take the time to attend as a means to test all things and report back to their congregations honestly what they discovered from Dr. Preston's presentations. Uh, the letter is going to say something to the effect of, Dear Pastor, we are hosting a short conference on the much-debated topic of preterism by having Dr. Don K. Preston come and speak on the subject Friday night, September 11th, and Saturday morning, September 12th. This is an invitation for you to specifically attend as you publicly teach a futurist position to your congregates, and we believe it will be a great opportunity to seriously consider a view you may not have previously entertained. In the end, whether you agree or accept the preterist view is almost irrelevant, but we would hope you would consider this a great opportunity to learn. The conference is free and food will be served. Please bring your hard questions on the subject as Dr. Preston is considered by many an expert in the area. There will be a non-confrontational Q&A on both days. We would appreciate an RSVP before August 10th. Please call blank. Thank you, Sean. Uh, as an FYI, this invitation is going to go to uh, the local churches here in Salt Lake, and uh, we're talking, the pa and they probably don't even know I'm still alive, most of the pastors, but we're going to send it out and hope to probably 20 or more and hope that the pastors specifically will come. Why do this? Because we are to test all things and hold fast to what is good, and two, the truth sets us free. And I think that when people can see the validity of this, especially in this day and age, I had a Dr. Rivera back east send me a video of a woman who does a podcast or, uh, on YouTube about what's happening with Jesus coming and how September 23rd of this year is supposed to be the big deal. I mean, she has a, almost, I guess it's a daily thing where she is out there just saying, we've seen this sign, we've seen this sign, you know, just really hyping people up and people are freaking out, you know, he's coming, he's coming. Well, I think that this teaching will set people free. And um, with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. For the past few weeks we've been going through and I've been culling out from the scriptures, the New Testament, passages that support the idea of subjective Christianity. We covered Romans and 1 Corinthians in the past. Tonight here are some passages from 2 Corinthians. First, in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul, referring to his apostolic position, says plainly, not for that we have dominion over your faith. He's talking about himself as an apostle to believers, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. This was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, look it, we don't want dominion over you. We're here to help increase your joy, and it's by your faith that you stand. Has nothing to do with his authority. The word dominion has its uh, uh, root in the Greek to lordship. And uh, I think it's a radical, radical passage. 
2 Corinthians 3 is amazing. Read the whole thing, but let me hit on a few key passages. Verse 1, we read, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of condemnations to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Do you know what that says there? It says that human beings are the epistle. That's what Paul says there. You are the epistle that you go out and you show who you are. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such we have through Christ to Godward, it says. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? And then jumping down to verse 17, he adds, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Those are such fantastic passages about Christian subjectivity and how it is not words and letters written with ink that cause us to then readopt a new law and then impose it upon everybody. It is the Spirit, and what is the fruit of the Spirit? It is love. It is love. Uh, in chapter 4, listen to what Paul writes. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That every single man, every single woman, every single believer has a conscience. And it's up to them to decide, Paul says, on how they're going to take what we have to say. That we have that responsibility before God. We're given that responsibility. We are, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, condemned to be free. You can't escape it. And with that freedom, we will die and go to God. And Paul says, look, at, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. Not to have dominion and lordship over them but to just appeal to them through the Spirit. That's subjective faith, folks. The last verse of chapter 4 reminds us of the spiritual nature of all things. Christian saying, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I would commend all of chapter 5 to you. It's amazing, but consider these highlights. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, meaning our bodies, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. It's very spiritual, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we are in this tabernacle do groan, in these bodies, this the state being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the same self-same thing as God, who also has given unto us the earnestness of the Spirit. That's pretty heavy, but it, it's still more stuff about the spiritual nature that we long for. This carnal tabernacle is not our destination. We long for the spiritual things, those who are believers, walk and live by that spirit. Listen to his message in verse 12. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that we may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. And then in verse 16, hence, wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh. That's what he says. We don't know each other by the flesh. 
If you're rich, if you're poor, if you're missing an arm, if you're handsome, whatever you are, we don't know you by the flesh. We know you by the spirit. Religion is bringing in flesh. It brings in outward looks. It brings in how to know people by their wealth or by their poverty or these things. Paul says, we don't know you by that. We know you not after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. It's wild. We could talk about that sometime. How seriously do we take chapter, uh, verse 16 of chapter 6? Listen to this. We're almost through it. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now listen, if you and I and they and every believer are the temple of the living God, God dwells in us, he walks in us. He is our God in us. Who the hell has the right to try and get us to listen and obey and follow them? Nobody. If God is, that's why I used to say the LDS, we have a prophet. We have a, why do you need prophets and apostles? You have God within you if you've been born again. What do you need men and women to dictate your things for when the scripture clearly says God dwells in you? And with that comes responsibility, you know? I submit, I get submitting when it comes to an organization. You know, uh, we have a building here. If someone came in and said, I'm gonna spray paint the walls of your building, I would say, I really don't want you to do that. And if they took the spray paint out, I would say, I think you need to leave. Uh, and, and if they submitted to that, I understand that. If I am in someone's place or whatever, I understand order and people being in charge. I'm not talking about social anarchy here. I'm talking about people superimposing their ideas doctrinally, spiritually, or, or in praxis, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, speaking of how you give your money, this is what it says. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Get that? It's subjective. You don't give because there's a necessity. You don't give because there's a command called tithes. You don't give because a plate is passed. You give because you give not grudgingly or out of necessity from your heart because God loves a cheerful giver. I tell people, you could be a millionaire and I would love to take your money. But if your heart does not want to give some of that money to the ministry, Keep your damn money because it won't mean anything to, to God at all if you give it grudgingly or if you give it out of to be seen, if you give it to be uh, any of that stuff is not how it works, which is why I have such angst over that term tithing. From 2 Corinthians 10 verse 7, unto the end, take time to reflect on Paul's words here. I'm not going to do it. It's too long to properly exegete, but uh, you can do it. You have the spirit. You can do it. And then Paul adds... Uh, talks about fear in verse uh, chapter 11. He says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. That your mind could be corrupted from the simplicity that is him. It's just him. You know? It really is. And all the rest of it. Modern translation, take all your BS and uh, its simplicity in Christ. Finally, 2 Corinthians concludes at chapter 13 with these words. Paul says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. That means be made whole. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I try to get the better looking... <laughs> I'll stop right there. <laughs> and all the saints salute you. Now, Note the emphasis there in this, uh, in this end salutation, or whatever, not a salutation, but this ending. He says, there's an emphasis on unity, there's an emphasis on peace, there's an emphasis on love, one mind. With that, why don't we wrap up this segment with a word of prayer, and we'll get into our subject for tonight. Lord, we seek and love you, and uh, in spirit, we want to know your truth. Help us to know you better. 
and uh, to be free, to have that liberty that, that Paul wrote about in Scripture. Liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, to be who we are, how you made us, and how you have equipped us. Uh, Lord, I pray for this. Bless our volunteers and those who are seeking for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so last week, uh, we took ourselves up to the point of where Erasmus and Luther were having a division in uh, over already over sola scriptura. How do you interpret it? What does it mean? And so let's continue, and I'm just going to move through. You ready? And we're going to wrap it up, sola scriptura, tonight. In 1525, the Anabaptist movement began completely different than what Luther was talking about. Completely different. In 1528, Lutheranism is officially adopted with Luther confirming by his views of Scripture that Christ's actual body and blood is in the communion that the people were taking. That was his interpretation through Sola Scriptura. In 1537, Miles Coverdare Bible was published. Nine years later, this Bible, which included the Apocrypha, was banned by Henry VIII. In 1535, Thomas More refused to accept Henry VIII's claim to be the supreme head of the church, and they executed him. In 1536, William Tyndale was put to death, and English ecclesiastical authorities ordered his Bible to be burned because they thought it was supporting Luther and his reform. In 1536, Calvin wrote Institutes of the Christian Religion, Look what that has created uh, uh, out in the world today. In 1536, Jacob Hutter founded the Hutterites. Okay, the Hutterites, for goodness sakes. Uh, where are the Christians, you know? Where are just the people, the followers of the way? Where are the people who are just Christians? No, we have Hutterites that start all the way back in 1536. Lutherans, Hutterites, Millerites, on and on and on. In 1537, the Matthew Bible by John Rogers was published. This Bible was not authorized for public worship because it contained very offensive uh, notes within the text. In 1539 to 1569, the Great Bible by Thomas Cromwell, defective in many ways, was the first English Bible to be authorized for public use in Christian churches. In 1540s, Parliament of England banned Tyndale's translation of the Bible, said it was crafty, false, and an untrue translation. In 1545, a Catholic Council of Trent offered up, finally, a counter-argument to the Reformation stance uh, uh, that the Protestants made. In 1552, uh, Joachim Westfall started controversy against the Calvinists and defends the Lutheran doctrine that Christ's body and blood were really present in the, the uh, communion that believers took. Division, division, division. Sola Scriptura, Ali Ali Oxen Free, come out wherever you are, do thy job. Sola Scriptura, come on, where is it? This is supposed to solve everything. It's solving nothing. In 1555, Michael Servetus, who you've heard us talk about before, unwittingly the founder of Unitarianism, is burned at the stake in Geneva, and I am convinced that Calvin was... Uh, the reason he was killed, if he didn't do it himself or take, burned at the stake over what? Opinion. It was opinion. He was a scholar. Calvin said, I don't like your scholarship. 1553, Queen Mary I of England persecutes reformers John Rogers, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cranmer, 238 people burned at the stake. They didn't like the opinion. 1555, the Peace of Augsburg Act, listen to this, gave religious freedom, finally, to Germany, but only to the Lutherans. <laughs> In 1560, the Geneva Bible, the first Bible with chapter and verses, comes out. So now we're, you know, we're starting to see the Bible that we have in our hands, all the way out here in 1560, right? 1572, John Knox, he starts the Scottish Presbyterian Church. Why? Why another church by another guy who's reading the Bible? Due to disagreement with the Lutherans over the sacraments, church government. 1585, Jesuit scholar Francisco Rivera publishes the first futurist interpretation of Scripture by preaching his interpretation of Daniel and Revelation. 
and says, this is the first real public sermon that we have of them saying, this is how to interpret the scripture. Jesus is coming out into the future. Oh boy, here we go. In 1609, the Baptist Church is founded by John Smith. Why? Opinions against infant baptism, which Sola Scriptura allowed people to baptize infants, and demands for a church-state separation. This is when people started saying, we need to have a separation, not a unity. In 1611, the great year, the King James Version Bible, a.k.a. the authorized version, comes out. It's published based primarily on Tyndale's Bible and the Bishop's Bible of 1572. The first printing included the Apocrypha. Is this the Bible we base all of our ideas on, or is it a later edition? It's a later edition. In 1635... What Roger Williams was banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony for advocating a separation of church and state. Good for you, Roger. Good for you. A separation. Because everyone else was looking for that kind of the theocratic state. 1636, Harvard University begins as a training school for ministers. 1638, Anne Hutchinson was banished as a heretic from Massachusetts. She had a spirit. She had a heart. She had a love for God. And a woman banished out there in Massachusetts because she differed with Puritan clergy. This is what she said. It's a quote. You have no power over my body, neither can you do me any harm. For I am in the hands of the eternal Jehovah, my Savior. I am at his appointment. The bounds of my habitation are cast in heaven. No further do I esteem of any mortal man than creatures in his hand. I fear none but the great Jehovah, which has foretold me of these things, and I do verily believe that he will deliver me out of our hands. Therefore, take heed how you proceed against me, for I know that for this you go about to do to me, God will ruin you and your posterity and this whole state." End quote. She was fiery. She had a firm, driven belief of who God was and her relation to, to him. And essentially, she said, Phanopoli to the religion of the day. Oh, and then in 1650, God bless him, Bishop James Usher calculated the date of creation for us. Thank you so much, Bishop of Usher. The date of creation of the universe, October 23rd, 4004 BC. Thanks, Bishop of Usher. Thanks for putting that out there for us all to have to explain away forever and ever and ever. Sola Scriptura? Did he get that from the Bible? I think he tried to get it from the Bible. But I mean, come on. It's this kind of thing. It's why I argue against it. Again, love the Bible. Love it. But we have to use it properly. 1692, Salem witch hunts begin in colonial America. 1693, Jacob Amon founds the Amish sect. 1730 to 1749, the United States experiences a first great awakening. 1738, John Wesley and his hymn-writing brother Charles founded the Methodist Church and its movement. 200 years of the Bible guiding, and we have more and more division as we have gone on, not less and less. In 1774, Ann Lee popped up with the Shakers. In 1779, Virginia uh, presented the Statute for Religious Freedom, and it says in part, quote, Jesus never coerced anyone to follow him, and the imposition of a religion by government officials is impious, end quote. Where are those now? Where are those quotes now? In 1791, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibition the free or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end quote. A country's Congress, this country's Congress, is wise enough to take a stance and say it's up to the believers to decide, it's up to the citizens to decide how they're going to believe. They had that wisdom. The churches won't even do that. The Congress can say, you are free to believe as you want, but the churches say, no, you must believe this way. As we enter into the 19th century, there is battle over converts, divisions, doctrine, practices, debates. 
which churches correct begin to be the clarion call. In 1809, the Disciples of Christ, a.k.a. the Campbellite movement, it began to seek to restore the true church back to the earth. This is where this whole thing started to get going is because of Campbell. In 1819, John Thomas Jefferson, a deist, decides to produce his own Bible. He says, this whole stuff, all this stuff is crazy what I see around. I'm going to produce my own Bible. In 1828, the Plymouth Brethren were founded, and they're the guys who really started to promote what's called dispensationalism, which is what futurists today glom onto. And then in 1830, Charles Finney revivals led Americas into, America into what is known as the Second Great Awakening. Uh, his view of sola scriptura produced something called the anxious bench, which wasn't known before. And what it was is that his revivals, people who were threatened with hell and all these other things would come forward and they would sit on what was called the anxious bench and they would just be all wrapped up with religious fervor and they would keep getting more and more wrapped up until they threw themselves in ecstasy and cried out, God save me. And that was a precursor to the coming forward and be saved movement that we see in our churches even today. Prior to that, wasn't there. Sola Scriptura wasn't taken from that. We don't see any of that from the scripture, but suddenly it becomes normative. And we have pastors every, every day, every week, having people say, come forward. And people say, did you go forward so you could be saved? Completely a cultural application. And then in 1830, you know the score. Joseph Smith Jr. starts a church of Christ as a result of reported heavenly visions, buried gold plates, seer stones that made it in the paper today. The Elias Church finally publicly showed the picture of the seer stone that Joseph Smith claimed to translate his Book of Mormon from and revelations from God. Why the heck not? Why not do what he did? In the face of all we have seen, why not? He looked around and the guy could see that people wanted certainty. He could see that they wanted leadership. He could see they wanted promises of absolute truth and a restoration. Sola Scriptura wasn't giving it to anybody. All they got was division. And being who he was, I believe he decided to give the people what they wanted. He earnestly wanted to do that. We cannot ever say that any of the men or women who precursed him or came after him, that their interpretation under Sola Scriptura was absolutely correct. Not one single person has ever been able to give us an absolutely correct assessment of Scripture, and yet we say sola scriptura is the way we govern ourselves. Smith knew there's no way we can get around this by saying revelations from heaven will give us the truth. And we started to see more and more revelations and visions that would come in and clarify all the differences that were surrounding him and his family, etc., etc. Why would God allow this to occur? Because the importance has never, ever been perfect doctrine and practice. People may demand it, but that's not, it's never been that. The importance has simply been his son to have faith and to love. The spirit is primary and preferential. The Bible is secondary and referential. The traditions of man are deferential at best, and the authority and brick and mortar churches are absolutely inconsequential. If you can remember that mode, you will see how I believe, and it's my ass assessment, of what scripture says of how church should be. But I don't think you have to follow me. I think you can follow anything as long as Christ is in that mix and you're seeking him. The divisions didn't stop with Smith and his dreamy imaginations. The, the train kept rolling, but now we had people popping up and soon visions and things were really starting to take place. William Rogers, he, I mean, William Miller in 1831, the Advent movement, a precursor to the Seventh-day Adventists, 
he started saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And I mean, he was reading Daniel and Revelation and he was preaching second coming around the corner. Smith and Mormonism was a big part of millennialism and saying, hey, the millennia is coming. Let's, let's usher it in, right? And Miller jumps on that bandwagon. He does the same thing. And the Millerites experienced in 1844 what was called the Great Disappointment. They all went up and they, they I mean, they listened to him and they said, it's going to happen. And they were greatly disappointed because there was no second coming. Ellen G. White, co-founder and prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, has her first vision in 1844. See, personal visions were the key to now overcoming Sola Scriptura and the mess that it made. If a person could claim that they had an actual vision or insight into God's mind, that he spoke to them, and these, all these kind of leaders would claim that, then certainty could come amidst the division. Religious visionaries are nothing new, even prior to the 1800s. But in the face of Sola Scriptura, religious visionaries seemed more reliable now than the, multitude, the multitudes of people who are just reading the Greek, reading the Hebrew, and saying, no, this is what it means, or that is what it means. In 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. In 1846, Bernadette Subrias received the first of 18 apparitions, visions, right, of Our Lady of Lourdes in France. Today, six million people a year go to France, to Lourdes, to go to the place where she had her visions. In 1847, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was founded in Chicago, Illinois. In 1848, the perfectionist movement in Western New York kicked into gear, and I still think some of them are around today. And in 1855, Soren Kierkegaard, a man who had a great disdain for religious abuses in his life, presented another way to see Christianity. We call it Christian existentialism. It is one of the forerunners to subjective Christianity today. In 1863, the Seventh-day Adventist Church officially formed. 1865, Methodist preacher William Booth founds the Salvation Army. He says, we are going to bring the gospel to the streets of the most desperate and needy people on earth. And they've done it. My cousin is a captain in the Salvation Army. In fact, he's higher than that now. And they, they believe in feeding the poor and clothing them and helping them. And they do it. I mean, they live up to what they, how they've interpreted Scripture. 1879, Mary Baker Eddy starts Christian science movement. She had visions and understandings and revelations. 1881, the revised version of the scripture comes out and it brings a confrontation to the authorized version of the King James. The revised version was taken from the West Cotton Hort transcripts and there's all kinds of debate now, even today, that created another division. We have King James onlyists who say you can only rely on the King James to know what is truth. And then we have those who read the revised version from the West Cotton Hort uh, manuscripts and say, this is the only uh, Bible that you can trust. It's amazing what we've allowed to happen. 1884, Charles Taz Russell founds the Bible student movement. It becomes the Jehovah's Witnesses in time. 1894, another forerunner, uh, forerunner um, contributor to the subjective Christian movement steps up. His name's Leo Tolstoy. He writes a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And he is the father of what we would call Christian anarchy. And he says, listen, we have arches. We have primary forms that we look to. Christians only arche is Christ Jesus. We don't have any other arche. So a Christian anarchist says, I don't have anybody I follow but Christ. Governments, he was a little radical. He would say not governments or anything else. But that was the beginning of that. In 1806, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles starts the Pentecostal movement. Thank you so much for that. In 1807, the Church of God in Christ is formed. The Church of the Nazarene in 1809. Schofield Reference Bible, which is a Bible that was written according to Schofield and Darby, which took the whole Bible and translated it in a futuristic sense of how to see uh, futurism. It didn't have a preterist view. It said Jesus is coming. This is how you read Daniel, Revelation, and, and the others. And then in 1810, The Fundamentals, a 12-volume collection of essays by 64 British and American scholars and preachers formed what is called Christian fundamentalism. We are going to talk about Christian fundamentalism next week 
1819, Karl Barth came up, commentary on Romans, critiquing liberal Christianity. Barth says we need to begin neo-Orthodox Christianity. And then in uh, 18, 1942, the evangelical movement was established. And then in 1946, the Revised Standard Version is introduced, which brings in more difficulty. And then in 1947, Carl H. Henry produces a landmark work comparing modernism of Christian, modern Christianity, they call it modernism, against fundamentalism in the United States. And at this point, the establishment of fundamentalism as opposed to modernism is where we're going to kick off next week and talk about what that was and how that still exists today. It's the liberals versus the conservatives. Talk about a bifurcated party. Talk about a split party. So, in summary, the first 330 years, the church went without an agreed upon or an existing whole Bible. First 300, 330 years around there. There were parts of it all around. Sola Scriptura? No. Sola Spiritus? Yeah. Then a thousand years with a Bible that could not be accessed or read or afforded or trusted by most in the end. Then 515 years from 1500 to 2015 where Sola Scriptura divided everyone in the body of Christ from each other, producing elitist camps of opinion around the world. It also helped foster the visionist movement and the restoration, I mean, reformation, restorationist movement. Isn't it time we wave the dang white flag? Let's wave the flag. Let's just make this a religion for people who simply have faith in Jesus, love each other, and allow everyone to believe the Bible in the way that they understand it. Can't we do that? If we could, we would have such a different picture. Before we go to the phones, I want to do a little experiment with you. I want to give you six words. Okay, are you ready for these six words? You may have heard this before. Here are the six words. I did not say you stole. I did not say you stole. You have those six words? Now, from what I can tell, there are at least six ways to understand that sentence. It's all dependent upon emphasis. And unfortunately, in the Greek, we can't always tell, especially in the Hebrew, where the emphasis lies. So we could read it, I did not say you stole, but Jim did. That's how you would read that, the emphasis on I. Second, I did not say you stole, which means I did not say you stole yet. I will, I have, or I did not say you stole, meaning I didn't do that. I did not say that, the way we would normally take that phrase. I did not say you stole. So I typed it in a text. Or I did not say you stole. I said that Sally stole. You get it? Or I did not say you stole. I said you murdered. You see? Just with emphasis, six words. English. We read it once. I did not say you stole. It seems so apparent. But the way we deliver it changes the meaning of the sentence altogether. Now translate these six words into 6,500 different languages. All right? Spoken in the world today. And now look at the Bible. Not six words. 783,000 plus words. Multiply that by 6,500 languages and you have a world trying to agree over 5 billion terms. Okay? And they claim sola scriptura is the way to govern the body of Christ. The way to govern the body of Christ is faith in Him, love, and let all the differences, I don't care how egregious they seem, be solved by God in the heart of the believer. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590 8413 
And uh, while the operators are clearing your calls and we have some emails to read, take a look at this. Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are in the end between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to love. Uh, we have a, uh, a call from uh, Sam in Fowlerville, Minnesota. Sam, we'll come to you in just a second. We have an off-air comment. Dear Sean, I want to thank you for your humility and courage to approach scriptures in the way you do. I'm so sick of pastors reading scripture than having a PowerPoint presentation on everything that they were taught, and they themselves are not teaching what God could show them. They're not open to the Holy Spirit. I don't agree with everything you say, but I respect that you make a stand for certain doctrine. Enough on that. I was reading Job for the first time in a long time and noticed how it was written. Seems a bit fairy taleish, just by the way it is written. I have heard you say in previous episode you think it's true, but that was a while back. What's your opinion, not only on the story of Job, but on other stories from the good old days? Could some of the stories just be the uh, heart-led stories from God, like Jesus and his parables? Love you, man, much. Cole from Gravette, Arkansas. Uh, you know, I'm open to whatever it is. I, I can believe there was a Job. I can believe that the whole thing was there. And I can believe that is completely there for our learning. And it's a, it's a, a, a story to learn by. I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm not going to die on the hill on creation. I'm not going to die on worldwide flood. I'm not going to die on evolution. I'm not going to die on any of that. I am open to seeing it either way. I believe the story delivered by the Spirit is true, meaning that it does give us what we need. To say it was literal, I can't say. I don't know. There once was a man, Jesus' parables. Well, there once was this guy, and he went a-fishing. That wasn't, that wasn't true, but it was certainly teaching truth. So it's up to you, really, Cole. Uh, my opinion is, I don't know. I believe that, if I, really at the core of my heart, I believe that the Job story was true. It's the oldest story in the Old Testament, they think, and so I think it has some merit. Uh, and there's a lot of things in it that I resonate to, but then again, uh, I could be wrong. Uh, let's go to Sam in Michigan. Sam, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, this is Sam. Hey, Sam. Is this, is this Sean? It is. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I see everybody do that every time they call you. By the way, it's Michigan, not Minnesota. And, well, and, <laughs> that's all right. Anyway, my my um my problem is is I I got so many questions I don't know where to start. I'm pretty new to Christianity. I was baptized in Baptist church about three years ago, and I've I've got probably every kind of Bible there is. I mean, I re, I when I sit down and study, I do three four Bibles, and. I don't know. I, you know, I just want the truth, and, and I mean, I, I I hear things from my pastor, and I don't understand. And I read my Bible, and so I'll grab another Bible and I'll read that, and I, I find different things. What's a good Bible? I mean, where where should I go? The one you can understand. Uh, the Bible I, that you can understand is going to be the good Bible for you. A lot well, of people. I, it, no, go ahead. A lot of people uh, try to read like the King James. I can understand the King James simply because I was LDS, and that's what they uh, all use. And so that's how I learned to read the Bible. But, I mean, if you have a... That's the beautiful thing, really, about the Bible. It's understood spiritually. So if you have a... Um, if you have a seventh grade translation of the Bible for people who understand seventh grade writing, and you read the stories in it, it's the spirit that's going to do it. It's not the ink. So uh, whatever Bible you can understand, Sam. Right. Now, so let me ask you, what about the, the Gothic, Gothic text? You know, I've read a lot of them, and, you know, and then I've read, like, the Maccabees and 
you know, the seven Bibles, out, the seven books out of the um, out of the Catholic's Bible. You know, where do I where do I go? You you know what I mean? I mean, and you know, and I got like I said, so many questions. Why weren't the apostle? Why weren't the books like the Apostle of Thomas or the or the um, Mary Magdalene and, and Enoch and all them? Why weren't they put in the Bible? I mean, I even understand about Constantine back in the third century. It, I look. I just want to get to the truth. All I want is the truth. Well, Sam, that's and I the, have no. That's the most important thing right there. Is that you're a truth seeker. Uh, you'll come to understand uh, and get answers to your question as to why Maccabees isn't in some Bibles today and why it was in uh, the, the, the first editions of the certain Bibles. You're going to understand why Thomas's gospel wasn't included. And you might say it should have been. You know, they certainly didn't have any problem with excluding or including books in the Bible when Luther uh, was reforming the church. He did it himself. He said, throw Revelation away, get rid of Hebrews, get, certainly get rid of Jude, and get rid of James. Get rid of those books. So, I mean, the Holy Spirit is in you, Sam. You are seeking for truth. And the bottom line is, you are not saved by knowledge. You are saved by faith. It's not your knowledge, it's not your degrees, it's not your understanding of Scripture that has saved you. It is your love for God through Christ. If knowledge saved us, only the scholars would be in heaven. God hasn't set it up. Now we've become a church that only believes, that believes we have to have all this knowledge. That's just not true. But you're a seeker, so seek knowledge. God will clear it up in your head. He will open things up to you. You will change. You'll have opinions that you have today. In a year from now, those things may change, and you'll grow. And But just keep going and keep searching, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. That really clears up a lot. So so I, I can trust in my King James, because I find different things in all these different Bibles. I find things that just aren't right. Like, you know, like the NIV, for one, like Acts um, chapter 8. They leave out, they leave out 37. Now, I understand in the linear they didn't find that in the Greek and all this, or somebody added it, but it's kind of the whole point of the whole chapter, you know? Yeah, and there are people who just really go after the NIV because they say they used bad manuscript original texts to create the NIV. Not really just the NIV, any of the revised version Bibles. So, yeah, one verse... People will kill me for saying this. If one verse is missing, I think you're going to have everything you need. Because if, right. if, if Luther could say get rid of James, I think one verse missing isn't going to be a deal breaker, and the NIV is a fine Bible. Okay, that's, that's what I wanted to know, because I have one of them, and I have, I have like 12 Bibles. Seek uh, the Spirit, Sam. All right, so thank you very much. Sean. Thanks, I man. Thanks for calling. Oh, yeah. All right. Bye-bye. That's Sam in Fowlerville. What did he say it was? Everybody here remembers. <laughs> They're yelling at me. Uh, listen, a thanks to Wally and Wendy and Rick. Uh, we're going to show you a picture right here. Seth or Merle, want to bring that up? The LDS Church showed today in the news, I think for the first time publicly, they admitted that this is from their archives or from their storage unit. Hold on for one second. There it is. That is the rock, the stone, that Joseph Smith claims to have translated Scripture from. It's uh, all over the news here. My mom in San Diego didn't hear about this, but there it is. Uh, I had some, I, Rick t texted me this picture and wrote a caption that said, Upon this rock I will build my church. <laughs> but there it is. That's the big deal right there. They haven't shown it. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, the LDS Church, they're making a, sorry, they're making a ballsy move. Uh, they're, they're hiding behind it a little still, but they're coming out. They put out an essay that admitted Joseph Smith married other men's wives, married teenagers. They're showing the rock. They have to do it because the youth and everybody are finding out about it anyway. They're going to come clean, and they're going to try to keep that church alive. I think that uh, more and more people in this day and age are going to stop converting, and I think you're going to see the LDS Church 
uh, become a very humanist organization more than they already are, but that's my estimation. I think the war with the LDS, uh, because of everything that's out there now, if that just keeps out there and alive, I'm not sure that the Manti pageant needs to be picketed anymore. I think it would really be remarkable to the LDS if everybody just left them alone. Just left them alone. Their conference has nobody there. The Manti pageant, nobody there. No one cares anymore. It's done. The internet's taken over, and they can look at themselves shamefully and say, what are we going to do with this now? Because I think they've thrived on the stuff that I've helped contribute and other, other two. That's helping still. What people have done, it's helping. But I think that's a good thing to do. Got a question from Deb. It says, just found your show. I've been listening. I came out of a fundamental legalistic Baptist church some years ago. I have close LDS friends. Is Christian liberty and subjective Christianity the same thing? They are one in the same. One in the same. We could have called it Christian liberty. You can view it any other way. Uh, you can be, people can be sold out on healings. Praise God. They can be sold out on speaking in tongues. Praise God. They can be sold out on preterism, futurism, baptism, whatever it is. People are going to believe what they want to believe, but let's love. Let's have the liberty to believe what we want. We're free in Christ. And we're simultaneously responsible to him and him alone for the lives we live and the things we believed and the studies we do. Let's just agree with that and love everybody right on up into the kingdom. From Speedy Gildone, I question that name. Uh, Using your logic about God reconciling all men unto himself eventually, Speedy writes, won't he also reconcile Lucifer and his legions. Uh, first of all, uh, Lucifer is really not the name of Satan. That's the name of another biblical character, and we can see today that that is a misnomer. So when people call Satan Lucifer, it's kind of a misapplication. His name is Satan, really. Uh, Satan was not a human. Satan is not a man. Satan was a heavenly creation, and Satan did not walk by faith. Satan didn't live under the conditions of a fall. So when I speak of total reconciliation, which is going to be based on those who have been reconciled to God by Christ's blood here or there, and who will be, receive the reward for their faith here or there, whatever that is, Satan isn't subject to that. Satan has been in his presence. Satan is a completely different creature or animal. So I don't see how total reconciliation would play a part in that whatsoever. Julie G. says... I have a question concerning the recent programs on the preterist view. Just to let you know, if you don't know, preterist view means fulfilled. That this scripture has been fulfilled. We now walk by grace. It's the age of the Gentiles. And it's, this has all been fulfilled. That's what Dr. Don Preston is going to come and address. I am wondering what your thoughts might be on whether someday there will be a new heaven and new earth. And will God redeem all things to himself at some point? On the last question, I do believe God will continue to redeem all things to himself. And I believe that when we speak in Hebrew terms, there already is a new heaven. There already is a new earth. And it occurred when Jesus overcame sin and death. The new heaven, the new Jerusalem is a spiritual place. Scripture clearly tells us the new Jerusalem is spiritually manifest. It's in heaven. It's not going to come down here. And, uh, and that occurred then. Uh, one uh, side note. Many people who have trouble with the preterist view want to know about Satan, and we've covered this before. If, if God has had victory, then what about this evil world, Satan? And the answer is Satan has been bound in terms of his power over holding people captive after this life. He has no power. He has the right, God has given him the right and the ability to tempt, to try, to do all the things he still does, but he has no power beyond the grave. That is Christ Jesus. That is his purview. He has won that right. So Satan has lost his ability, but he's still allowed to tempt and try. Tim says, I have been listening to your show since 2008. I find it very informative. I admire the amount of research you do and how God has used you to lead people out of Mormonism. That being said, I have concerns over your teachings lately. I have listened to what you have said about Christian subjectivism. It would be nice if we could just pray over a situation and make the kind of decisions you seem to be addressing. However, I don't believe this is always the case, and here's why. 
Satan has the ability to imitate good feelings. I will give you a case in point. We have a married lady in our church that I will name Mary Smith for sake of privacy. She seemed to have the personality of a joyful Christian when she was at church. However, all of her friends were outside the church and seemed to be very worldly. She would do the habits of the world. One New Year's Eve night, she went out to celebrate the new year. She wound up driving a man to her house. Her husband was 650 miles down the coast working and having an affair with him. Somehow, an argument assumed, ensued over what will remain forever a mystery, and he wound up strangling her to death. I think that she personally felt that she was ready to meet God. I would like to believe that she is in heaven, but I have my doubts. It seems to me that the Christian subjectivism you have been teaching may give people an excuse to look upon one or two instances in their life that they have felt the presence of God and assume that they are saved when they really not have had a personal relationship with God. Satan can imitate feelings for those he wants to fool. Then he writes, don't get me wrong, I hope I will get to heaven. I will be pleasantly prized to see her there, but my inclinations to think this are otherwise. This is, this is a loaded email. Uh, first of all, the fact that she committed adultery and the fact that she was strangled in the process or as a result of it, and the fact that she's dead has no bearing whatsoever on her place with God. None. If we were saved because we don't commit adultery, then, uh, then we're saved by our righteousness and Christ and his works were to none avail. And scripture is very clear on that. She didn't lose her salvation because she died in an adulterous affair. She didn't gain her salvation because she would have abstained from that had she had the spirit with her. This is, a, this is just not true. Uh, whether she goes to heaven after that life or hell is based upon whether she had faith. Do people who have faith in Christ have affairs? They certainly do. Do people have faith in Christ's sin? They certainly do. They fail, we fail, all the time. If not with the hands and mouth, then with the heart. So we need to understand that it's salvation in Christ is predicated upon our faith and, is not, and His grace through faith. It is not predicated on our righteousness. Okay, now in terms of your question about Christian subjectivity, uh, listen, we all are responsible. The Holy Spirit, I don't believe for a second that God is going to say to somebody who comes up and says, I really never even heard you, that he's going to say, I don't care. You should have known. He gives us what he gives us. We will be accountable for what he's given us. We won't be able to refute it. He's going to say, I gave you my spirit here. I called to you here. You knew this. You knew that. You knew what was right. You knew what was wrong. You, it's going to be between you and him. Me and him. That's it. That is the subjective nature of our faith. You can have a pastor teach you that Jesus is coming in September. You can have a pastor teach you that Jesus already came in the preterist view. You can have someone tell you to pay tithes. You can have someone say you need to be baptized by immersion. You can go on and on and on, but that has nothing to do with you and your relationship to God and how you're going to have to be responsible. The Spirit tells you, you can't, I don't believe that we are going to be able to say, I just trusted this guy. I think God is seeking those who seek him in spirit and in truth. And he wants those who are looking beyond the controls of religion and man. So I don't think I agree with your comments about this person and Christian subjectivity. Um, we had a pastor in Texas over a very large church this last week. I'm not going to say his name because I know how Christians are. He wrote, loved how you comported yourself in the content during the Trinitarian Inquisition. I'm a pastor at the blank in Texas and stand with you as a brother. You are loved and accepted, affirmed, validated, first by the Lord Jesus Christ, also by many of us who appreciate your ministry, calling, and fidelity to it. He signs his name. I looked the thing up. It's a big church in Texas. The message is getting out there because people are starting to see these things and the way we're treating each other are absolutely ridiculous. And listen, let's gonna take, we have one minute. Troy, we only have a minute. You wanna call next week or try to hit it with that? You're on the air. Oh, is it Sean? Yeah. 
Uh, I just had a question about uh, the manuscripts that Erasmus read. Was that for the King James Bible? Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. That was so simple. I think that wins the call of the year. And with that, we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. The storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till the hunt.